You're tuned in to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. Energy Voices is the monthly radio show of Student Energy, a global nonprofit that is focused on educating post-secondary students around the world on how we transition towards a sustainable energy future. On this month's show, we'll be exploring concepts such as energy efficiency with the Alberta Energy Efficiency Alliance, as well as some of the developments in Denmark's wind industry with one of our volunteers, Julius Wesch. We're also going to take a look at Student Energy's most significant program, the International Student Energy Summit, which has developed itself as the most geographically diverse event for students in the world of energy. Without further ado, we're going to kick things off with a review of This Month in Energy. This Month in Energy. Beijing has set a course to shut down all major coal plants by 2016. 2,000 smaller coal plants have been shut down by China in 2015, with the remaining plants expected to close in the Beijing area by the end of 2016. Beijing is one of the hardest hit areas for pollution in China with consistent issues around smog and pollution. This marks yet another step towards China greening its energy system at a very aggressive pace. One of the primary reasons for the switch is that Beijing's air quality and pollution are twice as bad as the national average in a country with very significant pollution issues. Canada's premiers have left a crucial climate meeting with no agreement or framework in place. Most of Canada's premiers gathered in April in Quebec City to discuss the provincial contributions towards Canada's COP21 commitments in December. COP21 is the most anticipated global climate event of the past 10 years, with many calling this to be the time in which a global climate agreement will be worked out. While many proposals were tabled by the premiers of the different provinces and territories in Canada, we were left with no clear agreement or target framework for how the provinces were going to contribute towards the national goals. The only primary outcome of the meetings were that the provinces stated to the federal government that increased efforts were needed on behalf of the nation to meet some of these climate change targets. The transition is on and more renewables were added to the grid last year than fossil fuel power. Research from renowned energy expert Michael Liebrich has shown that the world added 143 gigawatts of renewable power in 2014. This is a fraction higher than the 141 gigawatts of traditional fossil fuel added. This is a key moment in the global transition to a more sustainable energy system as it marks the very first time in human history that the deployment of renewables has outpaced the deployment of fossil fuels. This is a trend that is expected to continue for the foreseeable future with more and more renewable power coming online in every major continent of the world. In fossil fuel news, Halliburton posted a $643 million loss in the first quarter of 2015. The continued global downturn in oil prices has had a significant impact on Halliburton, who is one of the world's largest energy services firms. Energy services firms are traditionally one of the first industries to feel the impacts of the depreciation or increase in the price of oil. After losing $643 million this quarter, additional layoffs were announced. To date, 6,400 employees have been let go, with expectations that over 20,000 employees will lose their job by the end of this downturn. In other fossil fuel news, Saudi Arabia has boosted their crude oil production to the highest ever levels this past month. 
Saudi Arabia has been discussed as being one of the primary drivers of low global oil prices, and in March 2015, their oil production reached 10.3 million barrels per day. This surpasses the previous record of 10.2 million barrels a day that was achieved in August of 2013. Many see Saudi Arabia's increased oil production as a means for them to maintain market share and drive out low margin, high cost producers, particularly in the oil sands of Canada and the shale oil in the United States. The production growth was largely stoked due to end user fuel demand and strong refinery profits that have shown that oil demand has not diminished despite the decrease in oil prices. The U.S. imports of Saudi crude also rose to more than 950,000 barrels per day in March, the highest number in a year. The last piece of fossil fuel news relates to PetroChina. PetroChina, 80% owned by the state of China, has surpassed ExxonMobil as the largest energy company in the world based on market capitalization. On April 9th, PetroChina's market capitalization reached $352.8 billion, just ahead of ExxonMobil's $352.6 billion, marking the first time that ExxonMobil has lost its status as the top energy company in the world since 2010. A main reason for this growth has been the strong demand growth in China and the fact that the Shanghai Composite Index has gained 88% year-over-year, the best performance of any major indice in the world. Sticking with news from China, this month, China announced plans to build the world's first utility-scale fourth-generation nuclear reactor. This new reactor technology will use high-temperature, gas-cooled reactors and will be located in the Ruzhin area in the Jiangxi province in China. Expected to open in 2021, this technology is best known for its inherent safety design. This system ensures that the fuel elements of the reactor will not be melted under any circumstances and that there is no risk for radioactive material to be released. There are some very exciting plans coming out of Tesla Motors who have indicated that they are going to be releasing home-based battery and large-scale utility batteries sometime this year. Tesla Motors has indicated that these plans are to use their cutting-edge battery technologies in entirely new ways. As we've discussed many times on this show, reliable, affordable energy storage is the holy grail of a renewable powered grid. The issues of intermittency and optimization of renewables assets has led to their slow adoption. Tesla Motors' plan to allow for micro-generation through home-based battery and large-scale generation through utility battery could mark the tipping point in enabling micro-generation and grid stability for renewables worldwide. That's This Month in Energy. Next up on Energy Voices, we're talking about a subject that's near and dear to my heart, which is energy efficiency. Uh, I'm excited to welcome Jesse Rowe, who's the Executive Director of the Alberta Energy Efficiency Alliance, to the show. So welcome to the show, Jesse. Hey, thanks very much for having me. So... I'm very passionate about energy efficiency, but feel like it's one of the, the more obscure topics for people who are learning about energy for the first time or becoming passionate about sustainability for the first time. So I wanted to kick off the, the interview with a bit of a sense about why you decided to devote a significant portion of your career to energy efficiency and, and how you wound up in this role. Mm, yeah, no, great question. Well, I started off uh, working on all sorts of opportunities when it comes to uh, reducing uh, emissions and you know, uh, having a prosperous economy at the same time. And 
I eventually narrowed it down to energy efficiency uh, because it was one of those um, opportunities that uh, really had that, that dual benefit story to it where you can be reducing emissions and be uh, uh, making money at the same time. Uh, uh, energy efficiency, there's tons of opportunities out there where um, we can reduce our energy use and, and save more money than you spend. So the emission reductions really are uh, a bit of a bonus uh, at that point. And you can almost get uh, emission reductions for free. So that was one of the reasons why it, uh, why it excited me. Mm-hmm. And, and give us a background. What is the Alberta Energy Efficiency Alliance? Why, why is, did this organization begin? Mm-hmm. Well, it was an organization that uh, we put together about seven years ago. Um, there was a change in government. We had a premier who was in place for about 15 years, and there was a new leadership coming in. And we saw an opportunity to uh, to raise the profile of energy efficiency in the province from a from a political perspective, and, and get some more programs and policies going on in the, the province. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we figured the the best way to do that would be to uh, make sure they're hearing about it, uh, and not just uh, you know from one person here or there, but. Uh, uh, almost get a little coordinated um, uh, on uh, um, you know making sure they they know that there's people in the province who who want to see more energy efficiency happening and uh, the people we brought together uh, were representatives from from companies um, from uh, municipal governments from nonprofit organizations and individuals as well and they all had an interest in in energy efficiency so we thought um, you know it'd be good to um, you know uh, concentrate that into an organization to be able to say, you know what, there's all of these stakeholders out, out here uh, that are interested in the energy efficiency and, and we'd like to see our provincial government do more in this area. Um, so that was our main uh, focus that, that we've uh, worked on. Uh, but we're also uh, out there uh, trying to ge- uh, generate general awareness uh, around energy efficiency and the opportunities as well. So uh, we host events regularly and uh, with a relatively limited amount of funding, uh, try to do what we can to get the word out about energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. And the thing I wanted to focus on with you is is around sort of industrial or large-scale energy efficiency projects. Um, a lot of the time when we talk about energy efficiency, we sort of hear the things like replace your light bulbs, which everyone should do. <laughs> but uh, there, there's a lot of focus on sort of the individual or the household level um, from it from an energy efficiency awareness or promotion perspective. Um, so I wanted to, to have your thoughts on where where is the industry at regarding large-scale energy efficiency opportunities um, and, and what is the potential that still exists there, be it in Alberta, be it in Canada, or be it globally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, great question. And I, I completely agree with you that uh, it's important to be looking at all sectors, um, you know, the residential sector, and you add up all the houses and all the light bulbs out there, you know, it can add up to be a big number. Same thing with the commercial sector. And in Alberta, um, most of our energy is actually used in the industrial sector. So, yeah, huge opportunities there as well. Uh, when we look at the industrial sector, what actually when others have looked at the industrial sector uh, here in Alberta, they see um, um, uh, potentials to um, become more energy efficient in, in ways that uh, are cost effective, in ways that have a, a, a suitable return on investment for that industry. Of, uh, of up to 25%. Uh, that's when we look at the when others have looked at the manufacturing sector. Uh, so uh, you know, a quarter of your um, uh, your energy use uh, being cut in a way that gives you a positive return on investment, or uh, you know, meets your hurdle rates for investment. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty staggering. That's a huge number. And when we look at uh, the manufacturing sector, it's, it's a lot of uh, pumps, it's a lot of motors, it's uh, um, uh, heating units, furnaces, boilers, that sort of thing. 
when we look at our largest industries out there, um, um, things like the oil sands facilities, um, these, these are a little bit newer uh, facilities. Uh, so the energy efficiency potential isn't as high as uh, what you might see in a, a mature, say, manufacturing sector. But they've still um, uh, done studies, looked very specifically at oil sands plants and said, you know what, there's, there's about a 10% um, improvement we could be making. And again, uh, at a return on investment level that meets those hurdle rates in the oil and gas industry. So in some places, it's as high as 30% return on investment. And so we can see that um, there are these opportunities uh, to, um, to get even a 10% reduction. And uh, a lot of times when I say 10% reduction, people say, oh, that's, that's nice. But, you know, when, when we're looking at emissions, we're, we're looking to get really, really big reductions. So maybe we should be thinking, thinking bigger. And, and, I, and I, my response is, uh, you know, if, if we had an opportunity to take one in every 10 oil sense facilities and make it uh, emissions-free, uh, you know, I think that'd be a pretty darn good news story. <laughs> so I think the the potential in, in all of our industrial sectors is, is quite exciting for me at this point. Or if you think about any business owner, if you were to say to them, here's an opportunity for you to increase your sales by 10%, they would fall over themselves backwards to go after that. So it's, it's sort of interesting the way just the, the human mind works about these sorts of things that, that if you're already paying money for something, it's already budgeted in and people can sometimes forget about that. Um, yeah. And and you brought up things like the the opportunities that exist in in the manufacturing sector. What are some of those specifics when when you talk about a project that could earn a twenty five percent rate of return? What could that be? Like, give us some examples so that people can have a bit of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the simple stuff. It's uh, it's things like the the motors that they're using. Um, motors uh, um, have really two two opportunities with them. Uh, um, you've got the the control systems that control the motor um, to ramp it up and down, turn it on and off, um, and then there's the motor itself and uh, how much electricity does it uh, actually need to, uh, to to turn itself. And so with those uh, with those control systems, they've got advanced control systems that um, allow you to um, do more variable speed. Um, uh, some of the older uh, systems, it's more of an on or off and so even if you don't need all of that energy going to uh, to run your uh, run your process, um, you're you're still at 100% all the time. Um, so the ability to ramp up and down, uh, matching speeds, uh, uh, matching energy use to the actual demand that's happening at, at a particular time, um, you know, it's it's just a smarter way uh, to use energy. And uh, again, uh, when we didn't have this technology, we just kind of put in uh, the basics, you know, on or off and. Um, the, the way we wound motors was different. We didn't, we're winding them more, more tightly now, and so uh, you don't need as much electricity to, to get them to move. And um, So, you know, if you do that on, on every motor in your facility, um, if you do something similar in terms of upgrading uh, your heat exchangers when it comes to your, your boilers or your furnaces, um, you know, just taking, taking out some of the old technology, the way we used to do things, and bring in the, the new technology, the high-efficiency technology is... Um, um, really, where the big savings are when it comes to uh, uh, to manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's not rocket science. It's just about um, doing every pump, every motor. In some cases, lighting. You know, if you have a high lighting use in a facility, uh, every light bulb, um, and uh, yeah, paying attention to the little stuff really is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And and how so? An organization like like yours um, mm. is really sort of at the middle of probably a dozen plus stakeholders in the industry from vendors and suppliers to government entities to end users to uh, new technologists and inventors. Um, 
how what have you seen and where have you seen there be sort of effective convergence of those different stakeholders like how does how does it go from the idea of we should be more efficient to a project that's actually been implemented well, there's a couple of ways to do that. Um, one is is what we're seeing already here in Alberta, uh, where um, you know you get someone who's uh, who's keen on this, who's uh, keen on doing something differently, and whether it's in the residential sector, building uh, net zero energy houses, or in the commercial sector, uh, building uh, lead platinum buildings, uh, we've seen in the province. Um, in the industrial sector, I don't know if I have as, as many examples here in Alberta, but if we look internationally. Um, there's some companies that have really pushed the envelope and uh, um, really trying to uh, minimize uh, their energy use. Um, and so it's it's really those that say explicitly, you know, I'm going to make this a focus. This is something that I'm interested in, and, and I'm really going to pay attention to it. This is the champions up there. Um, so we see uh, a lot of great demonstrations when it comes to uh, pushing the envelope and, and doing things which, with much less energy use and still, you know, meeting the needs of your clients or providing the service that you're providing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the things that's happening uh, these days. The other one that, that isn't quite happening but we're really hopeful uh, will happen is to get organized uh, in terms of um, jurisdiction-wide uh, or province-wide programs. Um, so this is something we've seen be highly successful in other jurisdictions, uh, where you get an energy efficiency program that's, again, either focused on the residential, commercial, or industrial sectors, and that can really drive uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uptake in energy efficiency that we don't see naturally happen because, you know, people are not aware of it or they've got other priorities or, you know, um, just um, disconnected incentives. One person owns the building, the other person pays for the, the energy bills. Uh, so we've seen jurisdictions overcome these uh, these hurdles, um, and by you know having a, uh, a centralized program that can then engage with a lot of different stakeholder groups, whether it's suppliers or um, customers out there or uh, the regulatory side of things. Um, so that's something we're hoping is going to happen more here in Alberta, and that's why uh, one of our biggest focuses is really uh, engaging with the provincial government and uh, trying to get organized around um, some new energy efficiency programs here in the province. Mm-hmm. And. One of the things that we've seen over and over in the world of energy is that people will say that something's impossible until it's been done. Even mm. examples like uh, no one would buy an electric vehicle because they can't take a road trip in it. And then Elon Musk and Tesla Motors build across the United States network of supercharging stations and suddenly people are buying electric mm. vehicles en masse. So mm-hmm. what I, I bring that up to sort of segue into what are some of the case studies of success in these industrial scale um, efficiency projects because we've always seen that when you demystify that something's not impossible, it, it is very reasonable and it can generate a profit or generate a return, that then mm-hmm. that tends to be a bit of a snowball effect. So are, yeah. there any, are there any case studies or examples that you would want to point to to say like, look, look over there, they're doing it well, uh, and that's an example that we can follow? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One of the ones that I've um, uh, seen recently that I'm a, a big fan of is uh, is actually uh, what they're doing at uh, small oil and gas installations, or what some companies are doing at small oil and gas installations, uh, where um, you know they may not be uh, tied into a, a main line, or sometimes they are tied into a main line from a, from a gas perspective, 
Um, um, but what we what we see um, traditionally is um, there's um, some some methane um, that gets bled off from uh, um, either uh, an instrument that is actually using the pressure of the methane to to drive that instrument to turn a gauge uh, to do a measurement device that sort of thing, or in some installations where you don't actually have a natural gas um, um, uh, gathering system, um, you know it's uh, in cases uh, flared or vented. Um, uh, to the atmosphere because they're, you know, collecting the oil into tanks, but have nowhere to, to put the, the methane. Um, we've seen um, some some really good examples of reducing the methane emissions, whether it's flared or, or vented, um, from those those wells by doing things like um, um, these instruments that run off of the pressure of methane to do the measurement um, to either electrify them, so take them right off of, uh, um, you know, uh, methane being methane driven. Or um, um, there's uh, low-bleed instruments, which basically give you the exact same measurement capabilities, but instead of a, a big puff of methane that comes out every so often to, to run the instrument, it's a, it's a much smaller uh, puff of methane. And so um, when, you, uh, when you look at the economics, the straight economics of it, um, just from a, a, you know, how much the gas costs perspective, um, the, the return on investment can, can be quite low, I mean, something like 1% return on investment. So it's not very attractive to a company to go after that. But when you take into account the fact that methane is such a potent greenhouse gas and you start giving value to that at even $15 a ton, which is these days actually a pretty low um, uh, carbon price, um, all of a sudden the return on investment can go from 1% to 30% because they're getting value or, or someone is, is recognizing the value of not venting that methane. And so we've seen a number of um, uh, installations of these low-bleed devices or using, making better use of the methane on site at the oil and gas, low, small oil and gas installations. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it works. It's a, it's a proven technology. Um, the challenge that they have is um, getting the recognition that they're saving the methane and that's a good thing. And someone um, you know, may actually want to compensate them for it or you know, uh, capturing that value somehow is, 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 a bit of a, is a bit of a disconnect there. Um, so again, getting organized and as a whole province saying, you know what, this is something that we should be doing on maybe all of our small oil and gas installations. And, um, you know, it's just a better way to, uh, to operate. Um, it's something that we're going to need to uh, really get this type of technology um, deployed out to, I mean, there's tens of thousands of these types of installations out there in the province. Um, so really putting together a program to, to capture that, I think, is, uh, is a huge opportunity. And somewhere where we've seen some, some you know, demonstrated success and we need to kind of ramp it up to scale now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you bring up the fact that even a very low uh, price on carbon can often make some of these projects that uh, go from nice to do's to must do's immediately. And 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 that's and fifteen dollars a ton is still a relatively low price in the grand scheme of things. So um, I think it's just a, another check mark in the box of of the need to have a global price on carbon, no matter how low it is. It's still that valuation of the fact that we shouldn't just be openly polluting. Yeah, well, it, it, it adds a driver. And, uh, you know, there's lots of projects out there where it won't, where it won't take it from being uneconomic to economic. But uh, like you said, there are some that will. And so, hey, uh, <laughs> we, we, should, we, should, we should really be uh, figuring out how to take advantage of those opportunities right now. Yeah, perfect. Um, and, and so I understand that you're, you're also organizing a, a conference coming up to, to really tackle a lot of these issues. So we wanted to give you a bit of a platform to, to give our listeners a sense of, of what, what's going on and, and what's coming up in your world um, to, to gather the minds and to bring the resources together you've, you've, as you've been discussing on this. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Uh, so we've got uh, an event coming up in Edmonton on uh, March 4th. 
Uh, we're going to be looking at energy and emissions uh, uh, from an urban environment uh, perspective. So talking about buildings, talking about transportation, uh, talking about um, uh, combined heat and power, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so if people want some information, they can go to the Alberta Energy Efficiency Alliance website and go to our events page. Uh, so that's aeea.ca. And yeah, uh, March 4th, uh, I've tried to make the event very affordable and accessible for people. So hopefully uh, we can uh, perhaps get uh, some of your listeners out to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm booked to go and the lineup of speakers looks incredible. So anybody that's interested in uh, urban energy efficiency, there's a lot of work around um, their speakers around Edmonton's energy transition plan, uh, some of the greenhouse gas emission regulations. There just seems seems to be like you've create, curated an incredible group of, of thinkers and, and speakers that are going to be there. So I, I definitely encourage anyone that's interested in this space to attend. Excellent. Yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, well, that's it for the question that I had for you today, Jesse. Uh, I appreciate the the time you spent with us and, and the fact, the work that you're putting in in this space because I think it is some of the low-hanging fruit that exists for us and, and focusing on some of these large-scale opportunities to drive energy efficiency is what will get us towards a sustainable energy future. Excellent. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. appreciate uh, being on today. Okay, take care, Jesse. Thanks very much. Bye. Next up on Energy Voices, we're going to explore one of the most incredible case studies in the world of sustainable energy, wind power in Denmark. This interview is going to be conducted by Julius Wesch, one of Student Energy's most passionate and talented volunteers. He's going to interview the head of media for the Danish Wind Industry Association to explore how Denmark was able to use the oil crisis of the 1970s to propel an entire grid powered by renewables. Too often we're caught up in the case studies and the stories in which we've had a lack of deployment of renewables, and Denmark is at the opposite end of the spectrum. They're now dealing with a lack of available land for wind power because they've been so successful in deploying wind turbines across their landscape onshore. We're also going to explore some of the factors related to acceptance of the wind industry in Denmark and the links that developers and policymakers have gone to ensure that all citizens of Denmark are comfortable and earning from any wind development in that nation. I'm happy to turn it over to Julius for his interview on the incredible case study of wind power in Denmark. Hello, everybody. I have the great pleasure today to be in Copenhagen and here I sit in the offices of the Danish Wind Industry Association and next to me sits Peter Alexanderson. Um, he's the head of press of the Danish Wind Industry Association. Very much, I really appreciate having you on the show, Peter. Thank, Thank you very much, Julius. Um, well, Peter, um, yeah, maybe we start with, uh, with a short introduction of yourself, so please go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, as you said, my name is Peter Alexanderson. I am the head of press in the Danish Wind Industry Association. I have uh, worked here for three years, uh, coming prior from uh, Copenhagen Business School, where I have a master's in strategic communications. Um, in my daily work, I work with uh, the press in Denmark and Europe, uh, primarily, and also with uh, communications with the various stakeholders of the Danish Wind Industry Association. Just to uh, Sum up the Danish Wind Industry Association um, have 270 members in Denmark primarily, um, and we represent the whole value chain of companies in Denmark, from Vestas and Siemens at the very top to the smallest companies with one or two employees, um, providing a very specific service to the wind industry. 
Okay, thank you for that, Peter. Um, next year we'll have our big um, international uh, international student energy summit in Bali, and then we'll also have uh, a discussion on um, policy. And of course, wind policy is going to be one of the big things because wind and solar, as we know, are the cheapest renewable energy um, resources that we have on this planet. So would you give us an, an idea and insights on how the situation here in Denmark is? Because Denmark is one of the prime, ex prime examples for wind development uh, in the last years. Definitely. Uh, if I am to focus on, uh, on wind, first of all, uh, and secondly, solar, uh, you can say that wind of the two is the, is the most popular uh, source of energy uh, when it comes to the two uh, in Denmark, as we have a lot of wind in Denmark, but not a lot of sun. As you said, the wind is very cheap. It actually is the cheapest source of energy in Denmark, uh, at least when it comes to onshore wind, uh, when you compare to other types of new um, installations such as coal or gas or so forth. Um, and that is also why that Denmark uh, continuously has built out the uh, portfolio of wind power. And today we have uh, almost five gigawatts in Denmark in operation, primarily onshore but also offshore. Uh, currently we are the second, second biggest uh, market offshore after the UK uh, with uh, a little more than one gigawatt offshore. Um, we also do have some solar in Denmark. As I said, it's kind of limited. Um, mm. But but we will see some, um, some more expansion also with, with sun but primarily with wind power. Mm. The goal um, for wind power is to have roughly 50% in 2020 um, and the, the expansion comes primarily from offshore wind as Denmark is a relatively small country so we have more or less filled the landscape with the amount of wind turbines that we can fit. Mm -hmm. So the expansion that we will see in megawatts in the future in Denmark will primarily be offshore. Okay, you said primarily be offshore. Um, later on, we will come to the acceptance task because I guess, as you said, primarily means that there will also be some onshore wind development, of course, in the future. Of course. Okay, what were the, the main triggers of pursuing the transition to to this renewable, or rather renewable energy system here in Denmark? Well, the renewable system in Denmark was triggered back in the seventies. Um, with the oil crisis in 73, really sparked a lot of um, grassroots, a lot of in ingenuity in, among, among Danes and among Danish companies. Um, we had car-free Sundays, so people couldn't drive on Sundays because there wasn't enough oil. Um, we were 92% dependent on oil from the Middle East in 1972. Today, that number is down to 30-something. Um, so back in the 70s, we had a lot of pioneers and they started building wind turbines. And that really kicked off a young industry, but a very active industry. So you had farmers, you had uh, various workers making their own turbines. And that over time accumulated into more serious companies. And then in the beginning of the 80s, you had a lot of activity in the United States, a big wind boom, so to say, in the States. And a lot of companies made money from going to the States and, and that really started a lot of innovation and and basically the industry started in the late 70s and in the early 80s. And today more than 29,000 people are employed in the Danish wind industry. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of the cases that people often uh, look at when they look at wind energy. Yeah, they look at if the money also stays here and if, if, the, if it creates working jobs, I guess. 
That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, wind energy and jobs creation is is a very big uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, wind energy and wind turbine production not only benefits the climate but also benefits uh, the creation of jobs and so forth. Mm-hmm. This year, only 31% of the electricity used in Denmark came from wind turbines. Um, How did you counteract the intermittency challenges that you encounter in such a situation? So what you touch on here is actually a very important challenge. Um, We all know that some days are windy, some days are not. Uh, And that's the main challenge with wind. The main challenge with solar is that you only have sun more or less half the day. So with the wind, what we do in Denmark is that, first of all, we are very good at predicting the weather. So what we have is a lot of wind turbines that produce electricity when it's windy. And then on days when it's not windy, we have a capacity to produce electricity from other sources that could be biogas or coal or gas primarily. And what we also have is a quite fortunate position between Norway and Sweden and Germany. So what we can do is import uh, electricity from Norway or Sweden or from Germany or from Finland, which where we also connected to. Um, and when we have a lot of wind in Denmark, we can export it, so to say. Um, and what we really, as we will have more wind in the future, what we're really doing is that we will, of course, need more interconnections to other countries. Uh, so we can be connected to the UK, for example, also. And there are also plans for a cable to Holland around Germany. Um, but a really, really big blockbuster is actually to use the electricity not only for power in the sockets, but also in the heating system and in the transportation system. Mm-hmm. So what the wind industry as a whole are really trying to do nowadays is to think less in kilowatt hours and more in joules. Mm-hmm. So we need to focus our energy on taking the electricity from the wind turbines, put it into electric cars, put it into district heating, put it into big heat pumps into private houses and so forth as a way to to level our demand for, for electricity, so to say. Okay, that sounds really interesting. But is this only the view of the Danish Wind Industry Association or is it also the view of the Danish government, especially here in the energy ministry? I mean, there's a, there's a big agreement amongst not only the government and not only my association, but also other associations, for example, the Danish uh, District Heating Association, uh, where we have basically to use the electricity smarter. We need to put it into the heating system, for example, um, which has a huge potential of taking a lot of this wind electricity and heating our houses, for example. Um, We also need to put it into our cars. This is, of course, on a a little longer uh, scale, but, but... in the near future, definitely the heating system has a huge potential for taking a lot of the Danish electricity from wind turbines. And then secondly, interconnections with other countries. Um, not only the Danish Wind Energy Association, but also the European Wind Energy Association and also a lot of governments, including the Danish one, are working also on liberalizing, uh, so to say, the European um, energy market so electricity can move more freely across borders in in europe Um, as it is today you have a lot of bottlenecks around europe and and for wind energy and solar to be fully uh, useful we really need to break down these barriers and and uh, and work uh, 
better across uh, borders. And uh, this is also something that I am glad that the European uh, Commission and the European Parliament will be working on in, in, the, coming, uh, in the coming years. Um, and we, we, we hope a lot from, uh, from this work. Let's talk about acceptance. We all know that the energy supply that we all want to have needs to be eco-friendly, it needs to be cheap, it needs to be stable. But now we come to another point, and that's acceptance. Because the more renewable energy sources we have, the more the energy supply gets decentralized, the more people get in contact with the energy supply, which has not happened yet uh, very much in the past. So what is your, what, how do you see the situation here? What does the, the Danish government want you to do? And what are the, uh, the project developers, developers really doing? And are there challenges? Or do you see it as not a big problem here in Denmark? A lot of questions at one time, no problem. <laughs> um, you have, com you're completely right. I mean, there are, of course, also challenges in Denmark in relation to decentralizing the energy production. As I said earlier, we have had wind turbines in Denmark since the 70s, and today we have 5,000 turbines in Denmark onshore almost. So the Danes are very used to seeing turbines in the landscape. But of course, whenever a neighbor is confronted with the idea that they will install turbines close to his house, he or she will maybe get nervous. And that's a very natural reaction as, as you will always be nervous when, whenever somebody wants to, to do something in your neighborhood. Um, so what we do is very much we try to spread knowledge about wind turbines and we try to rebut myths. Um, we try to remove all the wrong and misconceptions about wind turbines and uh, fortunately in Denmark the government has also put in place some very uh, concrete le legislation um, for this. That means for example that wind turbines uh, need to be four times uh, the total height away from the nearest neighbor. Uh, it means that you as a neighbor has have the right to buy um, shares in the turbine at a cost price. It means that you um, can apply for a loss of value. Um, if you think that your house will lose value because of these turbines, you have the right to have a publicly um, uh, found attorney and the real estater out and assess your house. And if they if they find that your house loses value, the developer will compensate you with that amount of money. Um, so also, the local municipalities, they, uh, they will be uh, paid uh, for, by the government uh, for every megawatt that they install, and they can use those uh, money for local projects and so forward, uh, as they find appropriate. So, there are a lot of, you know, public legislation in place and a lot of private initiatives and um, the private initiatives very often go close with the uh, with the actual legislation for this next segment we wanted to give a bit of a preview about student energy's most anticipated program the 2015 international student energy summit for anyone that's been following Student Energy or our programs, you'll know that the International Student Energy Summit is our most anticipated, exciting, and large-scale event on the entire calendar for the organization. Taking place every two years, this event has already taken place in Calgary in 2009, in Vancouver in 2011, and in Norway in 2013. To date, we've had students from over 75 countries attend the International Student Energy Summit, and the fourth iteration of the event will be taking place this June in Bali, Indonesia, hosted by the Bangdun Institute for Technology. 
The International Student Energy Summit is the primary opportunity for any youth who's passionate about the global energy system to come together with your global peers to discuss, understand, and shape the future of our energy system. The 2015 event presents an incredible opportunity for students to learn about this year's theme, which is connecting the unconnected. One of the challenges that we face in the world of energy is how we bring online the one to two billion people in the world that don't have access to modern energy services. And this is the direct theme of ISIS 2015. Key sessions at the 2015 International Student Energy Summit will focus around the role of emerging Asia, both as a fossil fuel consumer and a renewable energy producer, and the dynamic role between energy investment, demand, and energy supply in that region. We will also explore investment risk in sustainable energy ventures and the road to Paris 2015. As discussed earlier, this December, the COP21 conference will take place in Paris and marks the most aggressive attempts to formulate a global agreement on climate since the Kyoto Protocol was put in place in 1998. In addition to programming that will include access to some of the world's leading experts in energy, we will also be taking students on a dynamic field trip so that they can explore some distributed generation projects taking place in Indonesia right now with the purpose of connecting the unconnected. For students that want more information on the International Student Energy Summit, they can visit www.isis2015.com. That's www.ises2015.com. Next up on Energy Voices, we're going to share with you an incredible essay that was written for the Student Energy blog. If you want to listen in to the views of the students of the world, you can visit studentenergy.org blog and read up on a number of case studies and thoughts from students from around the world. The following essay is from Elena Tatlasova, who's at Siftikar State University in Russia. The essay is titled Renewable Energy in an Oil-Cursed Economy, the Case Study of Russia, and explores the challenges of developing renewable energy technology in an economy based around fossil fuels. Without further ado, here is Elena's essay. With 10.4 million barrels extracted every day, Russia is the world's largest producer of fossil fuels, behind only Saudi Arabia and the United States. Fossil fuels and derivatives accounting for roughly half of federal budget revenues and an astonishing 70% of the country's exports have long been the pillar of Russia's economy. Given these circumstances, the development of renewable energy sources is not given much thought. Here, oil scarcity is generally considered to be a problem for the next generation and renewable energy, by the same token, a remedy for less fortunate countries. To note a personal example, a research proposal put forth by my ex-colleague included investigating the potential of renewable energy sources in our oil-rich region was rejected due to lack of relevance for the region. What are the numbers for renewables in Russia? What could trigger the development of renewable technology in the country? And what are the major obstacles? Can we avoid economic collapse that will result from oil depletion? What can we learn from countries like Norway, a nation that generates over 90% of its electricity from renewable sources and successfully manages a growing oil fund? 
The latest available statistics published by the International Energy Agency show that the share of renewable energy in primary consumption in Russia equals 10%. This 10% is almost solely comprised of hydro energy, the second largest source of renewable energy. Furthermore, existing infrastructure is aging and inefficient, functioning at 20% of its capacity. Most hydropower plants were built in the Soviet era. Solar energy, an increasingly important alternative energy source for the world, is rarely considered a viable option in Russia. Meanwhile, Germany, a country with solar irradiation levels comparable to that of the southern and southwestern parts of Russia, is developing solar at a very rapid rate. According to the World Energy Council, solar energy in Russia has an economically feasible potential of 101 terawatt hours per year more than half of what is currently being produced by hydropower plants. Wind power, according to the same source, has 60 times the potential of solar energy in Russia. It is clear at this point that the potential of renewable energy in Russia is outstanding, so what stands in the way of its successful implementation? Virtually no party involved in decision-making is interested in promoting renewable energy sources. Predominantly state-run oil and gas corporations are quite satisfied with the status quo, and legislators realize that tremendous investments are needed in order to return even the slightest increase in share of renewables. But fossil fuels are just as important economically as they are politically. It has long been a weapon of choice for the Russian government when negotiating. The state-owned pipeline networks extending to the West leaves European countries highly vulnerable. All this results in the absence of a comprehensive renewable energy policy. The existing energy legislation is fully centered on decreasing energy intensity and does not pay proper attention to the sources of this energy. The ambiguous energy strategy suggests that an increase of 3% in the share of non-fuel sources by the year 2030, equaling an annual increase of only 0.2%, and this also only merely acknowledges the need for legislation regulating renewables. The latest attempt to introduce such a law was undertaken in 2003, and that bill demanded 3% of total government investments to be directed at the renewable energy sector, and this was eventually rejected by the president of Russia. Talking about international compliance and enforcement, so far Russia hasn't demonstrated a high level of commitment to international treaties, perhaps even less so when it comes to environmental regulations. So what options are Russia left with? Are they condemned to wait until the horn of plenty of the Russian economy finally depletes in order to have any major changes? Creating an association of renewable energy producers for lobbying their interest in Russian parliament might help. But for this, a large number of small to medium-sized producers has to emerge, which is nearly impossible when there are no legally established economic incentives. In turn, legally established economic incentives are not likely to be introduced if they are not lobbied by the interest parties, thereby closing the vicious cycle. There is a very small chance that a radical shift will come from within in Russia. To facilitate this process, the international community has to take measure. A growing concern in Brussels is over the reliance of Europe on Russian fossil fuels, and the subsequent plans to find substitute suppliers is the first step to mitigate the challenges associated with this dependency. Although it's crucial, it is undoubtedly difficult to find a way to make Russia commit to these international agreements. That closes the essay from Elena on renewable energy in an oil-cursed economy, the case study of Russia.
Next up on Energy Voices, we're going to have an essay written by Alejandro Limon Portilla of Monterrey Technology in Mexico. Alejandro discusses in depth the role that taxation can play on CO2 emissions and how that can tackle climate change. While we've loosely discussed the concept of a carbon tax or cap and trade system numerous times on this show, this essay goes into depth about the role and the impact that a carbon tax can have on CO2 emissions. So without further ado, here is Tax CO2 Emissions and Fight Climate Change by Alejandro Limon Portilla of Monterey Technology in Mexico. When the Industrial Revolution began, economies started growing along with their carbon dioxide levels. Before the Industrial Revolution, the world had 280 parts per million of carbonic anhydride in its atmosphere. And now we have around 390 parts per million. James Hansen, NASA's climate expert, has stated that 350 parts per million could lead to future climate catastrophe. Unfortunately, we reached that level in the 1980s. Nevertheless, economies all around the world have now saved a special place for climate change in their national agendas, since CO2 levels continue to rise. In fact, global emissions have increased 25% since the year 2000, growing four times faster than during the 1990s. The curious fact about this is that only a small part of this growth has come from OECD countries, the culprits who started this problem. Developed economy CO2 emissions grew by only 5% between the year 2000 and 2007, while developing economy emissions grew by 50%. This is primarily due to the fact that developed countries are diminishing their coal consumption. Take, for example, France, which now generates 75% of its electric power with nuclear generators, or Germany, who now produce half of its electricity via solar. Not to mention that countries like Denmark and the Netherlands are leading renewable energy markets. The U.S. is also doing this, and between the years 2006 and 2009, their government rejected 83 new coal plant requests, as did the United Kingdom, who have built no new coal-fired generation since 1986. Coal produces twice the amount of CO2 the gas does and 20% more than oil. As we know, the price of oil will continue to grow and people will naturally turn back to coal since it is indeed a powerful fuel. Estimates about coal consumption reveal that demand may double between 2005 and 2030 with China and India contributing to 80% of this increase. And I ask myself, why is coal cheaper than other fossil fuels when it actually pollutes more than others? And this is because the market is not recognizing carbon dioxide emissions as an economic cost. When we talk about taxing emissions, economic growth becomes a very relevant topic. The relation between how much energy is needed to produce one GDP unit gives us a hint of a country's efficiency when it comes to dealing with carbon dioxide. For example, China uses four times more coal than the U.S. economy. In fact, today there is no country in the world that uses as much coal as China does, as they depend on it for almost two-thirds of their total energy needs and 80% of their electricity needs. The truth is that no country is going to sacrifice its economy for an environmental goal if others don't commit to the same measures. So how and why will a carbon tax be applied on imports? The general idea of a carbon tax is this. More CO2 emissions are generated by a product being created for export, and therefore a higher tax should be charged on that product. This will incentivize producers to use clean production in order to decrease their costs relative to competitors. 
so dirty economies that depend heavily on their export sector will be impacted unless they become greener. But this is not the only economic change that a carbon tax would bring, as reallocation may also occur. As a result of this, countries where labor is currently cheap and where large quantities of CO2 emissions are imported from all over the world, they will no longer be the best bargain. In future, when emissions are expensive, outsourcing to locations with cheap labor will not necessarily be fiscally prudent. Resources will be allocated to greener producers, and investors will be more intensive in coal industries. Countries that have experienced labor issues due to liberalization may stage a labor comeback while protecting their environment. Governments will know what to do with this, but there are two main financing green initiatives possible. The first is a taxation where goods that emit CO2 will be taxed based on production. This will include gasoline, plastics, fertilizers, electricity. This tax provides certainty regarding emission prices. The second method discussed is a cap-and-trade system. Within this method, the government establishes a limit on CO2 emissions and agents allocate their costs in the most efficient way possible to achieve that goal. Those who don't fulfill their objective will have to purchase credit emissions from those who stay below their target. The cap-and-trade provides certainty regarding emission quantities and leave it up to the market to determine the actual actions. Both ways, either by using price or quantity limits, are an excellent form of fighting climate change, and let's hope that our governments listen to these kinds of proposals. That concludes an essay from Alejandro Limon Portillo of Monterey Technology in Mexico on the role of taxation in fighting climate change. Recently, we had an incredible essay written by Amarnath Reddy, and we're going to read this out to you as it focuses on bringing light to India's urban poor. The issues of energy poverty and energy access are sometimes foreign to listeners in North America or Europe who have never known what it's like to turn on a light and not have there be power. In a world of 100.0% grid uptime, it's often difficult to understand the challenges that come in developing an industrial-scale, reliable grid in the developing nations. So without further ado, here's the essay titled Bringing Light to India's Urban Poor by Amarnath Reddy. While the world is talking about smart grids and new age energy technology, there are millions who do not even have access to electricity. There are still around 412 million people, roughly one-third of the population, without access to electricity in India. At an investment cost of $41 per person, it would cost about $17 billion to connect all of those without electricity today to the central grid. But grid-based electrification is not often available to remote villages and surprisingly even many living in the fast-growing urban areas. Energy poverty is now a distribution problem, not a technology problem. Research by the World Bank found that a shocking 28% of India's urban population lives in energy poverty. It is surprising that the slum dwellers of India are overlooked when it comes to tackling energy poverty as they are geographically not that far from the grid. Unbelievably, many of the slums flanked by high-rises remain in darkness 15 years into the 21st century. As a result, these poor communities have to use firewood and kerosene to fulfill their lighting and cooking needs. According to the World Health Organization, the use of fuel wood and dung for cooking and heating causes over 400,000 premature deaths in India annually, mostly women and children. 
The concentration of particulate matter in the air in Indian households using biomass is over 2,000 micrograms per cubic meter, compared to the U.S. standards of only 150 micrograms per cubic meter. Pollinate Energy, a social enterprise founded in 2012, has come up with a solution that promises to alleviate energy poverty and develop entrepreneurial skills in the people from these communities and to help them build clean energy micro-franchises. These franchises service urban slum residents with clean energy products such as solar systems and smokeless cook stoves. They are also in the process of testing shelters made of sustainable materials and water filters at affordable costs. I was part of the Pollinate Energy Fellowship and worked closely with micro-entrepreneurs to train them to start their own businesses serving slum communities. The pollinators, or micro-entrepreneurs, are recruited through a partnership with local nonprofit and microfinance organizations. Once recruited, they go through an intensive fellowship program and are placed into team with an international and Indian fellow who provide training in sales, customer service, and financial literacy. After just two years, the results are incredible with customers being better off financially through an average savings of 85 US dollars or 5,000 rupees per annum as a direct result of using solar lights. This represents money that would be otherwise spent on kerosene as well as additional income from being able to work at night. Moreover, the benefits aren't just monetary but range from environmental to health benefits as well. Pollinate Energy has started operations in its second city and is now planning to expand to over 50 Indian cities by 2020 to reach out to all families in need of help. That's it for this essay, and we encourage more students around the world to take on internships or to work in areas as challenging as the ones that Amarnath is working on in bringing light to India's urban poor. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. To listen to all previous episodes, visit bit.ly slash energyvoices or search Energy Voices in your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. Energy Voices is brought to you in partnership with Bullfrog Power, who has launched a revolutionary new option for students to purchase clean power. Visit bullfrogpower.ca slash studentlife to learn more about how you as a student can make choice in your energy consumption. As always, share your thoughts or ideas by using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook or on Twitter. Please visit studentenergy.org for more blogs as read on today's show and visit ises2015.com to learn more about the International Student Energy Summit. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair with production assistance from Chris Chang-Yang Phillips.